Hello everyone, I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Welcome back, Queens. We are lucky to have Dr. Brian Cook on today discussing some of our favorite topics on eating disorders and exercise. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Cook. His research focuses on the etiological role and therapeutic potential of exercise and eating disorders. His education at the universities of Rhode Island and Florida and an NIMH-funded postdoctoral fellowship provided training under experts in the eating disorders field. He has consistently presented research at international level conferences, including a keynote address at the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals Conference in 2017, published in leading journals, and written several invited book chapters. These accomplishments provide strong evidence of his passion for improving the lives of individuals and his potential for continued impact in the field of eating disorders. He has translated this research to clinical practice in his role as VP of Movement Research and Outcomes at Alsana Eating Disorder Treatment and eating recovery centers. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cook. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, you are an exercise psychologist. So could you define what that is and why a little bit about your journey to this career path and working with um, the eating disorder population? Sure. Exercise psychology is kind of a subspecialty of behavioral medicine and health psychology in general. It's kind of a newer uh, focus in behavioral health and psychology. Mm -hmm. And really what we look at in the field is how the body responds to movement and how that movement responds to our health and influences our health and has a reciprocal relationship with health. So it kind of takes this notion that, you know, exercise is this kind of antiquated, you know, jock mentality Mm -hmm. or gym rat mentality or something like that. And really looks at how it really is woven into the fabric of everything in our being. And all of that starts with our brain, basically. So when we do something like a sport or an exercise or any movement for that matter, what are the other things that go into that in terms of, you know, attitudes, in terms of behavior change, in terms of motivation, cognitions, things like that. So kind of more traditional psychology in that sense. But then more importantly, how does that behavior influence your health Mm -hmm. and vice versa? So I think eating disorders are a real interesting case for this because it's a double-edged sword with exercise and eating disorders. On the one hand, exercise can be tremendously detrimental uh, and in fact, even deadly with uh, a very severe client with say anorexia or something like that. Um, Because obviously if you don't have the substrate and the body mass and the nutrients to fuel the exercise and things like that, obviously bad things can happen and that's pretty well documented. But on the other hand, a lot of uh, research and clinical work has shown that 
under the proper circumstances, when you apply exercise therapeutically in a very similar way that we would apply exercise therapeutically for a variety of other health conditions, you actually can elicit a better response. And that makes sense Mm -hmm. because when you think about exercise, it obviously quite physically strengthens your body, but also your mind as well. And what we know now, primarily through the fields of exercise science and the subspecialty of exercise psychology, if you take it from the kind of psychological end, is that there is that reciprocal relationship, not only with the muscles in your body when you exercise, but also with your brain as Mm -hmm. well. And everything kind of comes online when you basically work with your body the way your body is built to work. Uh, And that's really what we focus in on. So that's kind of what interests me, especially with exercise and eating disorders, um, is trying to understand all of those kind of dualistic pathways. Um, So, yeah. That's super interesting. I was just thinking as you're speaking that we really do kind of cut off the brain from the body when we talk about exercise, right? We're really focused on how that's impacting my body, what it looks like, what's going on in there, but not so much of what's going on when we're in the brain when we're doing that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think all too often people use exercise almost as an excuse to disassociate Mm -hmm. and kind of shut it off you know, shut off the brain and, you know, do whatever they do and distract themselves. And obviously that distraction can be beneficial, but it can also go too far. And we certainly see that with eating disorders, the client who might be having a bad day and therefore using exercise to self-regulate their affect, their negative affect in particular. So they go out for a run, turn their brain off and that, you know, five mile run turns into a 15 mile run and they haven't eaten. And obviously that creates a whole host of physical problems because the body's moving and having to use energy and use other nutrients and other substrate within the body itself that just physically aren't there. So the body's going to adapt to create them. And ultimately, we see that manifest in all of the medical comorbidities that are well documented in eating disorders. So it's really interesting where where is that fine line? Uh, one of the things that my graduate school mentor really impressed upon me was we don't really have an upper limit for exercise, but should there be one? And I think with eating disorders, it really does kind of get to that point mm-hmm. where a lot of people can push beyond. And unfortunately, I think exercise psychology and especially with eating disorders also brings in a whole other um ball of wax with this, which is the social connotation of this and how much misinformation and just straight up ridiculous information there is out there about the social part of exercise and how that influences our behavior, which then influences our body ideals, our body image, Mm -hmm. our other behaviors that fall along the eating disorder continuum, and so on and so forth, ultimately resulting in really kind of detrimental aspects, actually. Right. We could just go down the rabbit hole of all the issues around how exercise is perceived. You know, I want this... I recently heard you discuss how it's important that we must address exercise just as we do food and treatment. And I've been working in the eating disorder world for over 10 years and worked in higher level of care for a number of those. And I'm just comparing how we're talking about exercise and treatment versus how we did 10 years ago. And I still feel, and tell me what you think, there is this fear of how we introduce exercise with someone with an eating disorder? Some fear, some concern, some worry. Do you think it's still controversial? What do you think about looking at it over time? 
Absolutely. It's still extremely controversial. The good news, I'll just kind of put the cart before the horse and stay positive here, is I do see that changing a lot, Mm -hmm. especially in the last 10, 15 years or so. So we are making inroads uh, towards kind of a more client-centered or patient-centered approach, because quite frankly, even if we tell a client not to exercise and we restrict them from moving, as soon as they're not with us, they're going to go out and do it anyway. So I think rather what we have is a professional and ethical obligation as a field to help basically discern and distill all of the issues that go around that exercise because behavior doesn't just pop up. It doesn't just happen. There's reasons for it. There's antecedents for it. So we have to address those things. And the other aspect of it and kind of uh, to the point of why I've said that in various talks that I've given that, you know, we can't just continue to stay on that path um, is when you think about it, our bodies are built to move. We have to move, whether that's, you know, walking to work, walking to school, um, you know, just running errands and things like that. Our body is moving. And what I noticed, especially 20 years ago, 15 years ago, even is a lot in the eating disorder literature would pick and choose what movement is required of day-to-day life versus what is compulsive. And it didn't really seem to match up. There weren't clear guidelines about that. So I think what's changed a lot in that time, especially in the last 15 or so years, is that as a field, we've gotten much better at defining, more importantly, the quality of the exercise, not necessarily the quantity Mm -hmm. of the exercise. And when we start looking at exercise through that quality lens, what we end up seeing is that in individuals with eating disorders, it really is more about the compulsive quality as opposed to the excessive quantity of exercise. And if we think about it that way, then we have a way to intervene on it. And what research has shown and clinical work obviously has shown is that by intervening on that compulsiveness and figuring out what are the specific reasons for the compulsion, Mm -hmm. whether they be, like I said earlier, affect management, whether they be a weight and shape concern, whether they be an exercise rigidity type thing, or a whole host of other uh, factors that can drive the exercise itself, we have to get specific about those things and start changing that functional relationship of exercise Mm -hmm. to be able to unlock the potential of exercise to no longer facilitate the eating disorder and rather just kind of mimic a more holistic way of well-being. Absolutely. Do you feel that not addressing it, not addressing it appropriately in treatment and higher level care or even outpatient, that that possibly is setting up a client to relapse? Absolutely. And we can see this from so many other fields. I mean, abstinence-only approaches very rarely, if ever, work. Very good point Uh, In fact, most most abstinence-only approaches just turn whatever that thing that you're supposed to abstain from into forbidden Mm -hmm. fruit, and then people want to do it more. Um, And we've learned this in the eating disorder field, which is really the thing that shocks me the most. Back in the 80s and 90s, when we'd go into middle schools and high schools to do prevention programs and tell particularly uh, school-age girls to not do X, Y, and Z eating disorder behaviors, we'd come back in six months and guess what they were all doing. So I think we have to have, and this is well established, especially in the uh, prevention literature for eating disorders, we have to have more covert approaches um, to, to doing this. So just telling somebody to not do something really doesn't address it. Um, It kind of puts a band-aid over the problem rather than addressing the underlying damage or, you know, issue that's below. Um, We also know that 
I mean, movement is something, like I said, that we have to do. And yet we treat movement and eating disorders treatment different than any other compensatory behavior or maladaptive behavior. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if you take movement, for example, that we have to do, it's very similar to eating. We have to eat. You would never say to somebody with binge eating disorder, well, you, you've abused your relationship with eating, so never eat again. Yeah. I mean, it just obviously doesn't make sense. But yet I get a lot of pushback on that from even professionals in the field that say, oh, so it's kind of like alcoholism right. where you can never drink again. And the difference is, is you don't need alcohol to stay alive, but you do need movement to stay alive. You do need to go out and interact with the world and with other people. So I think it really does come down to if we are striving for a holistic state of recovery, movement absolutely has to be on the table with that. Because ultimately, if I've gone through eating disorder treatment and I'm at home on a Saturday afternoon and my friend calls me up and says, hey, we're going to go for a bike ride or a hike. I can't say, no, I can't do that because I'm in recovery. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like full holistic recovery to me. Obviously, what we need to do rather is empower the individual to understand that behavior, understand the social connections with that, understand the biofeedback, understand how it is that this fits into their life now that they are in recovery, because that's a different politic with all of it. And if we can empower the individual with those coping skills and that self-awareness and that mind-body connection, then we can really start affecting change. And ultimately, we're seeing that in the clinical work that we do. Mm -hmm. So movement as a part of treatment, especially from the social aspect of reality is I'm living in this world and someone wants to, you know, let's go for a bike ride, right? How right. else is movement, would you say, beneficial to recovery in terms of the physiological aspects of eating disorder recovery, would you say? There's, yeah, there's a lot of exciting work being done right now with exercise psychology and exercise science in general, where we are documenting the physiological changes of exercise especially in the brain. We know that exercise does affect the same neurotransmitters and areas of the brain that um, are implicated with eating disorders. So we can find some regulation there and help use this um, to better outcomes with eating disorder treatment. We also know that when we have somebody who is underweight, if they are using, say, something like resistance training, mm -hmm. we can effectively add muscle mass and um, kind of further regulate metabolic rates and thermogenesis uh, to help them stay a bit warmer, especially if they're underweight mm -hmm. and don't have that protective layer to physiologically keep them warm, which is one of the um, physiological necessities of, of having a certain body mass, things like that. So ultimately, our bodies are evolutionarily built to move. So if we take that away, we're taking away a major aspect of what makes us a human being. Mm -hmm. We know that our body physiologically responds to movement in a much better way. And in fact, actually, if you look at a lot of the um, documentation on the effects of exercise cessation, you see a lot of um, really horrific outcomes where individuals do become depressed and anxious and socially withdrawn and experience a whole host of physical detriments and put themselves at a physical risk. Mm -hmm. um, instead, what we need to do is look at exercise as a more therapeutic thing. And I think the best analogy for this is something like cardiovascular disease. 
obviously something that's very pertinent to eating disorders as well. We know that half the mortality rate of eating disorders due to cardiovascular outcomes. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the history of cardiovascular disease, it wasn't long ago, even into the 80s and 90s, where if you had a heart attack, doctors, uh, cardiologists would say, well, your heart's been damaged, so don't put in any more stress on it. You know, don't ever exercise again. Now, if you have a heart attack, one of the first things that they do is send you down to the gym Mm -hmm. and say, hey, listen, you're going to be here. I know my stepfather had a heart attack and the next day they had him on a treadmill um, just doing some walking and things like that. So I think that um, kind of paradigm really shows where we need to be and where we're we're getting at as a field with eating disorders that physiologically we can use exercise to strengthen um, not just the musculature and the kind of over obviousness of exercise, but also the brain and the function of the brain mm-hmm. and the way that the brain connects with the body. Mm-hmm. You feel intention is an important part of health. Can you elaborate what you mean by that? Yeah, I think intention really does kind of bring it all together. Because intention is going to guide the way that we actually execute the behavior. And one thing that we see an awful lot, especially in our practice with our clients at Alsana, is that the clients will intend to maybe go out for that, you know, controlled, confined exercise session, let's say if it's a a mile run, for example. But as they're doing it, kind of like what we talked about before, you get lost and then that intention goes out and all of a sudden that one mile turns into a two, three, four, five mile. So I think the way that we put those um, parameters on the behavior and what is that connection that we have with the behavior and that um, kind of monitoring, that biofeedback monitoring of that connection and that intention of that behavior is very, very important and something that's I think lost in eating disorders, maybe more so than really any other type of uh, disorder when it comes to exercise. Mm -hmm. It really does reflect that kind of addictive quality or aspect of exercise. So I think if we can really work on not only the intention, but any of the psychological antecedents of exercise and understanding and being able to empower individuals with that self-monitoring And those are some coping skills that obviously take a while to develop. It can really help. And I think testament to that is some of the tremendous successes that you hear uh, people that have had eating disorders and are now in recovery report by practicing more mindful based Mm -hmm. activities like yoga and things like that. It really is about the intention. Yoga, I'm, I'm very happy that yoga is what it is now in eating disorders because even a decade ago, it wasn't as widely accepted. But if you really kind of think about yoga and what is the actual thing about yoga that works? It is the intention, mm-hmm. the mindfulness, the gratitude, the self-awareness, the mind-body connection, uh, even the social aspects uh, and the social support if you have a good practice that you're uh, participating in. It's not necessarily about putting your body in a particular pose or anything like that. And I might get some pushback on saying that, but um, obviously sure. my bias is an exercise psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, It really is about that intention and that mindful aspect of it. And I've heard many, many people um, that are in recovery and sustaining their recovery talk about that aspect of yoga being a key part of Mm -hmm. it. So I think it's a really good paradigm to understand how we can physically exercise, but also have that exercise connect to the mental aspect. I like that a lot. I'm just thinking, too, you talk about yoga, and I think it's great that it's become such a part of treatment and recovery and movement. And also I'm just thinking of clients who hate yoga (laughs) because it's so intentional. Do you think another aspect of that kind of treatment is 
uh, building tolerance for the type of movement that we're kind of um, integrating and adding to the slowness? It can be. Yeah, it can be. And I absolutely agree with you. There are certainly many clients that absolutely hate yoga or resistant to Mm -hmm. it or, you know, more tragically, maybe have had some very traumatic experiences around yoga. Certainly, you have to be very cognizant of particular poses in yoga, Mm -hmm. especially if, you know, there's a history of, you know, sexual trauma Mm -hmm. or anything like that with the client, because, you know, yoga can put your body in a pretty compromised and exposed position. Mm -hmm. So, I don't think yoga is the end-all, be-all. I don't think there should be any absolutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think oftentimes we look at something and say, oh, well, how did that work for one individual? And then we try to blow that up to every individual. And I think yoga is a good option, but it's not the only option. Mm-hmm. Rather, I think we need to find ways that we can find movements that can endorse that mindful, intentional aspect that we just talked about, but more importantly, can help the individual who's engaging in that activity, find joy in the movement. And that's something that's also lost when we look at exercise and active phase of an eating disorder is that people will do these tremendous amounts of physical activity, of exercise, of exertion, and not at all enjoy it or like it. Uh, And they continue to do the same thing over and over just because they have to, or they must, or they should. So I think what we need to do then is kind of blow everything up and say, wait, what are some other options that we can use exercise for finding some joy in movement, finding that connection and that peace? And if we can do that, maybe it is yoga, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, you know, just going out for a hike and noticing nature. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's going for a bike ride with a friend. Maybe it's doing something by yourself to kind of have your own alone time or whatever the case may be, but it will be very individualized to each person. Um, Dr. Cook, this is all such great information. I appreciate the conversation around, um, again, exercise, eating disorders, and what that looks like in terms of treatment and recovery. So um, I do like to end every interview with discussing with you how you feel, um, how do you complete the fit philosophy? So creating balance in your life in terms of performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self. So amongst your busy work and research, how do you um, kind of find all the balance personally? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle Mm -hmm. with, and it's easy to kind of fall down rabbit holes and and focus too much in one area than in the other. Um, I know for me, my uh, fiance is a great area of support to help with this and reminding me, hey, you know what, go outside, go play golf or go for a run or, or do something like that. But um, for me, I, I, I try to find ways that I can connect, particularly outside. I'm not a big um, person for um, going to like the gym sure. or something like that. That's just my own personal thing. I'd rather be outside kind of connecting with nature and with other people and things like that. So um, I try to make time, especially, um, you know, when we have nice weather, to be outside and go for a hike or go surf or play golf or something like that. So for me, it's it's really an excuse or an opportunity to really connect with nature and kind of be out in that kind of real world experience. Uh, and I find that to be um, a very nice way to recharge the batteries and keep things balanced, but not kind of overdo it. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. Spending some time. Well, today in Kansas City, there's some snow. So uh, hiking around in the beautiful weather. I, I love that as well. 
<laughs> Dr. Cook, thanks so much for being on and this great conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you're doing in this field. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks again. You uh-huh. too. Thanks. Bye. Bye, Queens. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com, to find out when the release date is set and when it'll be on Amazon. Bye, Queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag Fit for a Queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, Queens.